Hello, and welcome to episode five of the Who Made You Great podcast, where we speak with people who are great at what they do, about who helped get them there, because none of us does this alone. I missed y'all last week. I think it was really good to take the week off. We had this episode ready to go, but it just didn't feel right with the intensity of everything that was going on. But I hope that you also got to celebrate on Saturday. I live right next to New York City, so we were out in the city fully masked up, uh, but just reveling in the utter joy that was happening on Saturday. I think people are so relieved. And I know there's so much work to be done still and so many people to hold accountable, but it just felt a little bit better. So I'm excited to be back this week. Our episode this week is awesome. This Saturday, if you're listening in real time, November 14th is World Diabetes Day. And our guest today is just an amazing member of the diabetes community. Uh, We don't actually get too much into her own diabetes story, but we do chat a bit about the roles that she plays in the diabetes on the community, the work that she does there in access and advocacy and lifting others up. And you do hear her continuous glucose monitor beeping in the background periodically. And so, you know, you know it's real, real diabetes life. Now I have two quick requests from you because it's how you support the show. Thank you in advance. Number one, please follow us on Instagram at who made you great if you don't already. A really good perk of that is you get to see amazing photos of our guests and the people who made them great. Number two, wherever you're listening to the show, please subscribe. This helps the show get in front of more people, especially when we're first starting up. I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Who Made You Great. I'm so excited tonight to be joined by Eritrea, an amazing person with a lot of greatness. I'm very excited to talk to her. Welcome to the show, Eritrea. Thank you for having me. I love how we just recorded this intro. Like we haven't been sitting here talking to each other for an hour, like just <laughs> randomly. The magic. I'm just flies when I'm with you. It's just like, oh, I'm sorry. Did we have an appointment? Or we, did we have things to do right now? No, no. It would, <laughs> it would be a mess if we actually like had to get anything done, done. Anyway, let me do my intro, Eritrea. I wanted to speak to Eritrea tonight because I, I think one of the themes I've seen in the people that I've interviewed for this show is that it's less about the things and the products they put out into the world, that's just a product of who they are and more about who they are intrinsically themselves. And the common thread for each person who's been on the show, who will be on the show, is they show up as authentically themselves. They show up in spaces as them. And it's one of the things I really appreciate about you. And it's one of the reasons I gravitated toward you on the internet, because you show up as you and you say what you wanna say and you speak with purpose and you care deeply about things that you advocate for, and you equally show up with tenacity for the things that need fighting for, and humor for the things that are worth laughing about on a day-to-day basis. And that's such a special balance that you have. So I'm so excited to dig into how you became who you are and who made you great. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. Oh my God, cries in Spanish, Lala. My God, (laughs) that's so sweet. I think that the people that I'm going to talk about tonight would agree with you that I was just born myself. Like, she's here. This is who she is. I don't fit in a box. And I used to be a bit apologetic about it, but I don't think I am anymore. I think it's just, this is what it is. How how do you want it served? 
<laughs> How would you like me to deliver this message to you? In what language do you want me to say this to you? You want it in English? You want it in Spanish? You want it in Arabic? How do you want it? Because I'm about to read you in so many ways. So I, uh, I don't think that you're the only person who feels that way, but I do. Um, I appreciate being appreciated for who I am, and especially in a time where Black women aren't. I'd love to get into the greatness that you bring to the world and how you show up just generally as you, but also the different projects that you're working on. You seem to have a brain that can do a lot of different kinds of things, which I'm super fascinated by, um, from the work that you do in the tech space to support in the type 1 diabetes space. So I'd love to hear more about all those different things and projects. So I am professionally in application and development. So I train teachers, counselors, superintendents. I talk to all kinds of people all the time. I work at like the third biggest poverty stricken district in the United States. So we have a lot of poverty in our district. Our software that we use just houses a ton of information. So yes, I do have to train people who use the software, but then I also have to train the individuals whose information is housed in software. So like parents and students. So it's a lot of, especially with COVID and, and us being in this um, distance learning type of environment where now parents are part of the education process. They have the laptop, they're looking at the grades online, they are counseling with the teacher via Zoom conference, et cetera. There's a lot of information that they need. So there's just lots of stuff that I'm doing as far as technology goes. I didn't graduate from college. So doing all of this, even being able to, to say that I did it, that I'm doing it is amazing. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I love my job. I love the people I work with. I'm very lucky to work with a team of all people of color, especially where I'm at here in Dallas, Texas. My boss is a black woman. I think it's awesome. So I show up because there are so many kids who need my help, even if they do not know who I am, even if they don't know that I am the person who is resetting their password for the 97th millionth time <laughs> um, and who's emailing their mom to let them know that, hey, no problem, we were able to fix this. And I feel so... I feel like I, I'm working in my purpose, even though this isn't my permanent spot in life. Like I'm not always gonna be in technology, helping kids and being on a face, you know, face level with uh, our customers, our clients. But I just feel like I have so much purpose because I do speak Spanish, because I do speak other languages. So it gives me this ability to tap into parts of my brain that is so empathetic. So like when I'm, when I'm training a new registrar who doesn't speak a lot of English and I have to do the training in Spanish, I feel like I'm training my mom. Mm -hmm. And when I have to answer a phone call from a parent who is from Iran and doesn't know how to do any of this stuff and they're moving over here and, and they don't know what to do and their kids already enrolled and, and how do they fix it? I feel like I'm talking to my uncle. So it's like, I just, I relate so much to being an immigrant that when I have to talk to all these people who are struggling, it's just, it feels like I'm helping a family member. It doesn't help like, feel like I'm doing a job. I mean, I lean into it as much as I can. I try to tell every parent I talk to, like, hey, you are important. You are the most important customer in this district. So, like, you should know that. And you shouldn't get off the phone when people don't have answers for you. Stay on the phone. Now you have my phone number. Next time something happens, call me. Like, I got you. And I think that if you live your life with a grateful heart, with whatever it is that I'm doing is helping people, is even changing 6% of a person's day, like, that's huge. So I try to take that attitude with me wherever I go. It is hard sometimes. I'm not a perfect human being. I do get upset. But for the most part, I would say that living in gratitude, working with radical kindness at all times, it, it, you get paid back in tenfold, like tenfold. 
you bring that same spirit to the diabetes world as well. Your work that you recently came on with Rob Howe doing diabetics, doing things. Talk about that a bit. Um, so Rob is awesome, first of all. Big shout out to the big dog, Rob Howe. Yeah, I met Rob at a diabetics, a, a get together that they had in Dallas. It was like a meetup. And then from there, I sent him an email about my best friend's dad who I love. He's a type one diabetic. He is an avid golfer. He runs this blog called Tales from the Back Nine. Bill Nichols, awesome guy. Um, and so I wrote Rob an email and I was just like, hey, like, I think you should interview this guy. And like, this has nothing to do with me, but I just think this would be a really cool episode and I would love to listen to it. And I don't know if it was the way I wrote the email. I don't know what it was, but he like reached back out and told me thank you. And then like two weeks later, he was like, would you be interested in working for me? And so over at Diabetics Doing Things, right now I'm working on a few things. So we have a newsletter. I came up with a newsletter. It's called The Drip. Please subscribe. Please like subscribe it. It is in our bio if you follow us on Instagram, Diabetics Doing Things. So um, The Drip comes out once a month. It is a monthly newsletter of things that are happening in the diabetic community. I think it's a good space for people to catch up. We list like different virtual meetups. They don't have to have anything to do with us. We list other designers that people don't know that are creating type one diabetic gear. We list different podcasts to listen to. We list, we put other people on in our newsletter. It's not about what we're just like, what content are we creating? So it's kind of a one-stop shop resource where like, if you're getting into the space or you are wanting to show up more in the space, you want to come to the weekly Zoom calls, you want to be a part of these conversations in these forums, where can you do that? So it's a resource for that. Um, that's one thing I'm working on. I also have a right now international Instagram takeover series going on called Doing Things Day. Uh, so far we have been in Lebanon, we have been in Palestine, we have been to different parts of the United States. I think that we are telling new stories at Diabetics Doing Things and opening up a conversation that maybe is had not in the forefront of stuff. Like I think that we have the ability to, to talk about things that maybe other people don't want to talk about or that's uncomfortable or that isn't the most pleasant thing, but it's the elephant in the room and it's what we need to, we need to pull that apart, you know, really dissect it. And so I am super proud to work at Diabetics Doing Things. I would say that it is my passion right now. I love talking to diabetic people all the time. I'm glued to my phone anyway. So <laughs> why not be productive? The two things that you said of you love putting people on and you just operate from a place of empathy and radical kindness, those two things combined also leads into a lot of just the, the side work that you do on your own of trying to find resources for people in Palestine, in Lebanon, all these people who need extra help that the world's not paying attention to. I don't know how you remain so aware of everything going on in the world. I feel like a lot of times I find out or like I'm reminded of things that I really should be paying attention to through your Instagram stories and different things that you're talking about. How do you have the capacity to pay attention to so much? That's such a good question. Um, it's not so much that I want to. The other day, I, I, th I think it was you I told you this, somebody else maybe, but the other day I sat in my room and it was like the day of the Brianna Taylor stuff and how uh, only one person was even charged and it was just like a wall that they were upset about anyway. And I just like looked at the wall and that on that particular day, it was also like things were happening in Eritrea and things were happening in Palestine and things were happening in Mexico and things were happening here. And I sat there and I looked in the mirror and I just cried. And I was just like, I'm so, my soul is so weary. It is hard to be so intersectional. It is 
so, so, so hard. I uh, know that there are so many people who are just like, oh, mixed kids, like you have the ability to be the part, the part of so many things, but there's just so much that that comes with, you know? So I just try to be as aware of things as I possibly can be mm-hmm. and to not over consume because that can be bad for you. I think sensory overload is a huge thing, especially in 2020, especially during quarantine. But I just try to really read what I can and stay as informed as I can. And then I try to inform the people around me. So like, I'll be like, hey, have you read this book? Hey, have you read this? Have you done that? Because that's really the only way to be. How can you be a part of the solution if you don't understand the problem? Yeah, I think that's the way I I just try to stay as grounded as I can, as grateful as I can. I think about it every day. I'm so lucky to have been born here, like so lucky, right? And I think that if you just live your life that way, if you're just constantly grateful, it really will help you to not be so upset because it's easy to be upset about things. Did you always have that philosophy? Like did little Eritrea know to operate like, or when did that kick in? No, I think adulthood, maybe the last two years, therapy, growing up, getting a real job. I mean, there's so much, there's so much. I think that I've always been a very empathetic person. I think that I have always looked out for the little dog and in any job that I've had, whether it was like waitressing or cleaning or anything, I've always tried, like if there's somebody who's having a harder time than me, looked out for that person, whatever. But I think that with maturity came a lot of self-realization and less, and, and there's just less, less criticizing about myself. Because when I was small, I, I didn't like being multi-anything. When I was small, I just wanted to be normal. I was just like, listen, I just want to fit in. This is really hard. Like, why do I have to be black? Like, why do I have to be all these other things? And also, like, if I'm going to be black, like, can I be fully black? Like, why do I have to be hat? Like, it was just so frustrating. Um, or like, if I'm going to be Mexican, can I be full Mexican? Like, those because the Mexicans don't like me and the black people don't like me and the white people don't like me and I just feel alone. So it was just hard when I was little because I just really, I just really hated everything. I was really upset all the time. But as I grew up, I realized that that was a silly way to be. And I think that, like I said, therapy just really helps anybody. You have to unravel this knot that's in your mind, you know? So with therapy came growth. (laughs) If only we could let everybody know. (laughs) I could tattoo it to my head. Like if someone said, if you tattoo it to yourself, everyone will have to go. Like (laughs) just put it on me, man. Like. How would your close friends describe you in three words? Man, they would say that I absolutely have no filter. Filterless. Embarrassing. No. Um, <laughs> I would say that they, I, passionate is a good one. Passionate is a really good one. Probably filterless or just like hot-headed or whatever that word could be. And genuinely kind. How would you describe yourself in three words? Okay, self-judge. I'll put myself under the microscope. I, I mean... I would say that I am tenacious, stubborn, and hmm, thoughtful. I'm tenacious, stubborn, and thoughtful. What impact do you hope to have left by the time you're done here? Well, if I could just leave a good legacy for my brothers, I think that would be great. And when I say legacy, I mean someone to look up to, someone that they are really proud of, someone just like, man, my sister, like she was a beast. I don't really want more than that. I just want the people who love me to feel like I impacted their lives in one way. That's it. I think that that's the most that you can give the planet is your impact. And if you are consistently thoughtful about how you treat others and you know that that's how they'll remember you, then you could probably do a pretty good job with that. 
That transitions incredibly well to the second half of the podcast. We're going to start talking about who made you great. I am, I don't know if excited is the word, I am I'm honored to hear this story again. We've spoken a little bit about who I know you're going to speak about and their stories are deeply special and show a lot of resilience. So Eritrea, who made you great? My parents. I know it's such a cliche answer. Somebody needs to have an episode on the internet, on a podcast about Edna Huerta Musa and Ahmed Musa. My dad is Eritrean. He is why my name is Eritrea. And uh, he grew up in a very small country named Eritrea next to Ethiopia, which is across the Red Sea from Saudi Arabia. We have a lot of Arab influence in my family and just family all over. Eritrea has been war stricken or was war stricken for about 30 years. It started in the 80s. So my dad was really, really small. He uh, was part of the child militia that was a part of the Eritrean war. Um, and he won't tell you that it was militia, but that's just the word that I'm gonna use because children who are used as soldiers, mm-hmm. that's the word. Mm-hmm. Um, he lost his mom when he was really small. There was, I think she died in a part of an explosion. It's not something that we talk about often. It's just something really sad. Throughout the war, my dad and his family were separated and my dad was sent over to America as a refugee. He came to America, was about 16 or 17 years old. He was really, really young and he was really alone. And so then they sent him to good old Dallas, Texas. And my dad applied at Richland Community College or Richland High School and started going to school there. And was like trying to get his GED and stuff. And that's where he met my mom. She deserves her own introduction because mm-hmm. Edna, Edna is, she is the one, honestly. She created me. She is my Morpheus, okay? <laughs> <laughs> if I am Neo, she is Morpheus. So my mom, um, she is one of seven. My grandma is an amazing woman who lives in Mexico and all she ever wanted was for her, all of her daughters to graduate college. She is alive and she will tell you that they all have. She grew up working for other people. So because there were so many people in my mom's family when she was a little kid, she went to school really, really early. So she started like pre-K or kindergarten when she was like two or three, she was really small. And then after that, she would continue to go to school. But during the daytime when she wasn't at school, she was working in people's houses. So my mom was like one of those kids who would like clean the house or pick up stuff or whatever. And it was how my grandma provided for the entire family. All seven of her daughters would either have a job while they were in school and the younger ones would work and all the older ones were in college and um, help pay for the other one's bills. And that's just kind of how they did it because there were so many of them. Super, super poor, grew up in one room. My mom, when she was in high school, all she wanted to do was play basketball. So she wanted to clean people's houses because that was her job, go to school and play basketball. And she used to tell me about how she would get beat up for playing basketball. That was the thing. Like that was the one thing she wanted to do. And it was the one thing that her mom was like, no. And so my mom would get beat up for that. And so she was like, you know what? I'm out, let's go to America. So my mom, and she will tell you herself, illegally came over here like eight times, like just swam the river, jumped over. And she's so proud of this, like so proud of it. She's an American citizen now, but she's so proud of this um, that she still tells people she's illegal now. Like she's like, oh, I hope it makes you upset. It's so interesting to me because she ca- she kept coming here and now all she talks about is going back home. So whatever, but. <laughs> So it's it's definitely interesting. But then, so she came here and she ended up in Dallas because my Aunt Linda lives in Dallas. My mom ended up with her. Um, but my mom's actually going to go to Houston, but for some reason ended up staying here. And then she ended up taking classes at that same community school that they, my dad was going to. And uh, that's kind of where they met. My dad 
would sit outside. This is a story that I was told. It, must, it might be a very romanticized story, but this is the truth. My mom would play basketball and my dad would sit outside. And finally he was just like, who is this girl always playing basketball? I wanna talk to her. And so he came up to her and he was like, hey, like, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And my mom was like, disculpame, no te entiendo. My mom was like, I don't speak English. Like, what are you doing right now? And so uh, I think the next day my dad got like an English Spanish dictionary and like started like learning words to tell her. And she was just like, okay, this crazy black man, what does he want? Like, why is this crazy African man talking to me? And then that went on for a really long time. And then finally he started to get her to talk to him. And long story short, he has her on a date because he finally gets a car. Cause I think they're sitting there waiting for a bus or something. So he finally gets a car like my dad. Cause he's been working at this gas station. He's like 17 years old. He thinks he's so cool. He gets his car. He's like, you know, yo te puedo llevar a tu casa. I can take you home. And my mom's just like, no. I can't get in the car with you. So my dad's like, okay, well, can I still take you home? He's like, yeah, you can ride the bus with me home and then you can walk back. So my dad did. Uh, he was a simp. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. And then after a while, he finally broke her down. I don't know how, but then one day he asked her, he's like, why wouldn't you get in my car? And he's like, because in Mexico, the girls who get in cars are expletive word yeah so that's why and that's how they met and um i think they met like in july and no they met like years before but then they got married in like december of that year and i i came in august so you do the math i love them so much how did they support you growing up obviously they come from such intense backgrounds where they just had to work so dang hard especially like your dad coming from the trauma that he came from and your mom coming from her trauma too, of just having to work in people's houses and work when she was so young, mm-hmm. quarter. That's just a lot for them to carry and then to have you and then to have your brothers. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's a tremendous amount to take on, but they seem to have done a good job. So how did they support you all growing up? I'm 28 now. My mom at 28 had me and Osman and Samir at this point. Mm-hmm. She had three, which to me is insane. Mm-hmm. So... She was definitely the emotions person. She was also, I wanna say, really intentional and thoughtful with the things that she taught me when I was really small. Like she made me very responsible for myself from the beginning and very responsible for my two siblings. And I think that's a cultural thing because you're supposed like you're supposed to look up for your siblings, but like at my house it was more intense. It was like you don't eat until your brother eats. Like you don't, you don't do anything for you until you, you take care of your brothers. And my mom always really, really like hard. It's in my core. And then my dad, he also was very extremely ridiculously and still is thoughtful. So like he would be gone all day. I remember he'd be gone all day because he used to work like 16 hour shifts and you come home. And we, when, I, when he would come home, he would always have something for me, whether it was like a chocolate bar or a, a flight receipt from one of his customers that day that came from Dubai. And my dad like wanted to tell me about it or like a drawing that he made while he was waiting for something. And as I got older, he started to like pass it to me. So like I would come home from school and there would be something in my room that would be like, draw me a picture of what your flag would be if you were a country, like your own country, not Eritrea. Like he would ask me these random out of the box questions and just like really like, and then when he did have time to spend with me, so usually Saturdays, um, and this is probably why I'm in the tech field. When I was a kid, my dad would take us to the library every Saturday, no matter what. I don't know if it was because my mom needed a break. I don't know if it was just to get us out of the house. But we was at the library, okay? Everybody knew Brother Musa and his kids. 
So we were there and my dad signed up for these computer classes for adults. And they were like basics for beginners or whatever. And my dad was sitting in the chair and I was like seven. And he like came, he came over to me, he's like, come, come, come. And I was just like, okay. He like brings me in the room with him. There's all these grown ups sitting in chairs, learning control, all delete and all this stuff. My dad's like, come, come, come. And he like puts me between his legs. So I'm standing right in front of the computer like this. He's like, okay you push the buttons and I'm just like okay and so I'm like pushing the buttons as they're telling us and like he would take me to this computer class every Saturday for like a month and then I remember after my mom was like oh you're taking her to that computer class let's get her a book about typing and my mom had a typewriter she'd be like okay now you sit down and type can you type without looking can you type with your eyes closed like it was just stuff to keep me busy yeah but like my brain was always going my mom would give me puzzles um she has like all these home videos where she's like interviewing me. She's like, how old are you? And what do you like to do? And what's your favorite color? Like she just made me my own human. Like she didn't only, pro you know how some parents project? Yeah. My mom wasn't like that. She was just like, okay, what do you like? And what do you not like? When I was little, as I got older, that changed. But when I was little, <laughs> they really, when I was little, they nurtured it a lot. They were like, she's smart. So like, let's, let's put, let's lean into that. And I didn't speak any English until I was like five. So Can you speak Spanish and Arabic in equal measure? Did you start with one or the other? Both? So my Arabic is garbage. Everybody listening, my Arabic is basura. So, <laughs> shui shui, amigos, yalla yalla. Anyway, um, I can understand what you're saying to me if you're talking to me in Arabic and I can respond. I'm actually in a group text with a lot of people from the Middle East, like, and if they're listening to this, Serene and Yasmin and Noor and all my Arab friends, and they're always sending voice texts in Arabic. And I'm just like, I know everything that you're saying. Let me respond in English because I can't. <laughs> and uh, my Spanish though, that was my first language. Like I dream in Spanish, it's ridiculous. I think in Spanish, I sometimes write in Spanish. I, so grateful. Spanish is a mm -hmm. gift, it was a gift. And I fought it for so long. I didn't speak any English until I was like five. I had to go to ESL classes. It really sucked. Probably also language is what, what makes my brain this way, I guess. I don't know. Your brain does move very quickly. It's cool to watch you jump around. Are your brothers the same way? No, my brothers are not like that. One of them is, but the rest of them are pretty serious, down to earth, like very like, you know, very serious men who would like to be taken seriously. So no, they're not like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they are cute it is very cute to watch because like really really you used to pick your nose like really <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the the true magic of having siblings that we can remind each other what trash people we were when we were children we do it so especially me they hate me because i'm the only girl so i'm just always just like hey so do you remember when you said this and you're just like can you please be quiet <laughs> no i don't remember just shut up <laughs> with the fire that's just kind of intrinsically in you i feel like so many parents of girls don't intend to quiet that, but do because we're supposed to be quieter and calmer and sweet and, you know, sit in the corner. Mm -hmm. How did they not do that with you? How did they foster that side too? So they didn't. Mm. This is the thing. So this is a really good question. I would say that my personality just, children observe, right? My mom is exactly the way that I am. She's really the same. She's just with a little bit of an accent and about three inches shorter. Probably could kick your ass into next week, but that's watching from my mom. But I remember when I was little, um, my mom used to say this to me. She used to say, <laughs> she would say, con todos los demás, sí, pero conmigo, no. With everybody else, yes, but with me, no. So they would tell me all the time, like, somebody tells you to do something, you can ask why. They tell you to do it now, 
ask them why. If they don't have a response, then you don't have to do it. Like, I remember someone would be like, ask these people questions, ask them. They're supposed to be teaching yourself. I don't know the answer, ask your teacher. So I was encouraged to do this and then I would do it at home too. And then I, I got in a lot of trouble. Like there's a, a, a post on Instagram where I, I talk about my dad on his, on his birthday. I think I posted it about how I kicked this Coke machine when I was a kid because it stole my freaking Coke. And I got in big trouble and I got a referral and my dad came to the school to pick me up and I was like sitting on this bench and I was just like crying. I was like, man, this freaking Coke machine freaking snitched. Like, now I'm in trouble. I'm like in kindergarten. Like, what? And my dad comes out from the office, and he just, like, sat down next to me. He's like, what happened? And so I tell him, I'm like, I came over here because I wanted a Coke, and I put my money in. The machine stole my Coke. And so I started kicking the machine to get my Coke. He started giving me my Coke. My dad was just like, okay. So he comes over to the Coke machine. He sticks his arm in. He pulls out the Coke, and he, like, opens it, takes a sip, and he's like, let's go. He grabs me, and we just leave. We got in the car, and he's like, this Coke machine is stupid. This is a stupid Coke machine. And I remember like for the rest of my life, he would go to these dinners, like these air trade meetups, like cultural gatherings. And I, he would always tell me that what I did was wrong. And like, I got a referral and I got in trouble and like, I embarrassed him. And then he'd go to these meetings. He's like, my daughter, you cannot steal from her. She will <laughs> not let you. You can try. But you will Eretra? Go ahead, try. She has plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. Go ahead, try. My daughter, smart. Especially in our culture, like in Arab culture, you're, you're supposed to be, especially Muslim culture, you're supposed to be quiet, mm-hmm. modest. And that's not religious. It's cultural. It's mm-hmm. what they want, what they expect. And, you know, at the beginning of this interview, you asked me, you were like, I think that you're just so yourself. My mom will tell you that I was born this way. Like I was born, here I am, I've arrived. And if you don't like me, you don't want to fit me in the box that if I don't fit, I don't fit and I don't care. As a kid, I did not care. If you didn't want to be my friend, I did not care. If you didn't want to hang out with me, I did not care. Like, I didn't care. It was crazy. I had my brothers, I had my mom, I had stuff to do. I had Mexico, I had countries to go to. Like, okay, you lame Sally in first grade, okay. <laughs> my, my food smells like cilantro, okay. And it tastes better than yours, okay. And I, and I do it again. <laughs> <laughs> So no, I don't think that they really like, they didn't really water it, but they just would tell me like, be good, try your best, blah, blah. I would constantly get in trouble. My parents always had to deal with it because they would always have to go to the school and bail me out of trouble. But then whenever we'd get home, like I'd be in a little bit of trouble, but like not really, like they didn't really like, they were just like, these white people are crazy. Well, it sounds like they really did foster the whole, like there's, we know how you need to show up in the world and we know that you need to make sure you're standing up for yourself, but also navigating things. But also when you're home, listen to us, but it's also a safe place to be. Yeah. And like that kind of combo just feels really special. Yeah. I think that when I was a kid, I didn't appreciate it. Like when I was a teenager, I was just like, oh, my parents, they don't get me so much teenage angst. I'm Harry Potter and this is Order of the Phoenix and this sucks. All of us. <laughs> but no, like they just, it's also like, imagine they were children having children. Like they were super young. And then like my crazy, horrible self, because I was not a nice teenager to my parents whatsoever. Like my parents lived at my high school. Like they were always there. And the worst part about it was like, I was the kid who was like the debate team captain and a cheerleader who still got sent to ISS because some teacher said the wrong thing to her. So I was just like, bye. And I grabbed my stuff and like walk out of their room. So like, I just, it was, it was crazy because at school it was always that she's so smart, but like that mouth. 
I'm here to tell y'all that at 28 years old, mouth has not changed. So to all the principals, superintendents listening to this, welcome. I am the same. And also, it's a strength. I was the same way. I did really well in school. Like I was, I was fairly quiet, but I had my things that I stuck to. And I wasn't necessarily going to talk back, but I would walk out of the room and I would break the rules that I thought were stupid. And particularly, I went to Catholic high school my junior and senior year. There was a very strict dress code. And I broke the dress code every day because I thought it was stupid. And so just on principle, I broke it. So I was in detention every single day. And I got good grades. Like, I was doing fine. But on principle, I didn't agree with stupid rules. So I'm not going to follow them. And it's kind of how I am today. So... (laughs) I think that is also how I am as a person. (laughs) Like I see so many of people, so many of my peers who are always stressed out and they're always letting other human beings regulate their emotions for them with their words. And I'm like, why, why, why do you do that? And I think it's because Americans are programmed that way that it's like, oh, like this, this, this conversation culture, like I say nice things to you, you say nice things to me. And if you don't get the nice things and you're uncomfortable, I didn't care about being uncomfortable. Like I didn't care that my mom, spanked me yesterday i know i'm gonna wake up this morning she's gonna have some mexican food for me for breakfast and i'm gonna go to school i'm gonna get in trouble after school and she's still gonna make me my food and give me my hugs because that's how immigrant parents show you love is through food so i think that i did have in some way a safe space but when i was younger i didn't think it was safe i thought that it was like abusive and these immigrants and like i think i was low-key kind of racist like i was just like my parents are crazy and they don't these people of color are insane like (laughs) so as a child like you know what I mean because like as a child you're just pushing the boundaries constantly like trying to escape or get an arm out in whatever way you can and like I was doing crazy things like running away from home and stealing my mom's car and just wild and then getting a five on an AP test like it just doesn't like did not correlate so yeah I mean I feel bad for my parents that's why this episode is about them because it's like y'all I'm so sorry (laughs) thank you for not killing me in my sleep you did a lot for me. Also, I apologize for all of it. <laughs> you did so much. <laughs> no, I would. I think I. I think I would take someone like me out. Like, can you imagine? Like, my mom will tell the story now. Like, she has to. She had to sleep with her car keys in her hand under her pillow because she was so scared that I would just take her car. <laughs> but there's just. I. I had no fear. Like there was no. I was just like, yeah. I mean, it was definitely an interesting way to come up. I appreciate them so much. I learned so 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 much. I could tell stories about my parents forever. But I just, I'll tell you one more, and then I'm done because it's my favorite story about my dad of all time. And then we we can end the Who Made Me Great. (laughs) But this is part of why it is that why I'm the way I am because it's and this is back to like the thoughtfulness, like intentionally being thoughtful. So my dad told me. It's one of his favorite stories about his mom. When he was little, he used to walk like miles to go to school. Cause in Africa, like your school is far from your village fam, like far. So you'd have to wake up really early. And my dad's a Muslim, we're Muslim. So you wake up early, you pray Fajr and then like you go to school. And my dad's mom would get him ready. And so he would go to school. And he said every day on his way to school, there was this kid who would find him and knock his books down every day. My dad would come home from school and he came to his mom and he was like crying. And he was just like, mom, this kid. She was just like, Musa, you do not cry to me. You figure it out. You come back when you figure it out. You let me know what happened. And my dad thought about it for like a day and it kept happening, right? And it happened the next day and the next day. So he thought about it for like two days. Then he woke up the next day, two hours earlier than he usually wakes up. And then he went to where he would walk to school and he like dropped weapons like everywhere, like sticks and rocks and all kinds of stuff. And he was like five years old, okay? Like he was a child, like four or five years old. 
and goes back home, prays Pedro with his mom, like nothing happened, starts to walk to school. The kid comes to like knock his books down and my dad picks up a stick and he whooped his ass. And that is my dad's favorite story to tell me. He still tells me that story now. He's just like, you mess with me, I whoop your ass. And growing up, he would tell me that all the time. He's like, it's not about how big you are, how smart you are. It's like, it's about time and place. You have to think about the things you're gonna do and how you're gonna do them. And that's something he used to tell me all the time. And this is a story that he told me to teach me that. So if that doesn't tell you who my dad is, I don't know what will. <laughs> Both of your parents are people who will fight tooth and nail for what they know they deserve. Absolutely. So for someone else who is looking to develop into their greatness, who is looking to be more authentically themselves, who is looking to care less about what other people think, what advice do you have for them? I would say to take, first of all, a good, hard look at themselves. Because how you feel about you is really what matters. And if you're worried that other people don't like you, it's because you don't like you. And you should like you because you're probably awesome. But it's just the way that this crazy planet is that you're like programmed to think, oh, well, I'm not that important. Listen, listen, friend, you're important. But you gotta be important to you first before you're important to anybody else. Next. And the final question, plugs. Where should the people go to learn cool things, to consume cool content? Where do you want them to go? Oh, Diabetics Doing Things. Hit us up on Instagram, diabeticsdoingthings.com. Um, subscribe to The Drip. Definitely follow me on Instagram. I'd love to follow you back. I have this really weird thing where I literally message every person who follows me and I'm just like, hey, thank you for the connection. Can we please be friends? Because I legitimately would like for all of us to meet someday. I don't care where you live. I, I love that the internet has opened this door of so much human connection that it's literally, I'm insatiable. Like I cannot make enough friends. And I truly, truly believe that. Like I want to live on a planet with all of my friends. And so if all of you guys could just message me, that'd be great. But specifically, I would say definitely check out Diabetics Doing Things, especially if you're a diabetic, especially if you're looking for resources of what you can do. Or if you have questions, definitely email me. Rob and I are here to help. That's literally what our platform is for. We love to give our space up to other people that have a story to share. And I can confirm the just wanting to be friends with everyone thing. Because when I first asked Eritrea to do this, she's like, wait, no, I want to get on a call first because I want to do a vibe check. I was like, <laughs> definitely, let's do a vibe check. And I so appreciated that you did that. Like, that was such a genuine thing. Just be like, yeah, let, let's actually, actually converse, not just like do this transactional thing, but like, be cool. So I appreciate I, it. I like to get to know people's souls. I want to know what, like, what's in there. What, what, what makes y'all warm and fuzzy, friend? <laughs> I like that as a last note. You're so special. And to everyone who has been listening that, uh, alarm going off in the background has been Eritrea's blood sugar being low. And so we're going to send her off for another juice box. <laughs> I'm not low anymore. It's just like letting me know I'm not low. Okay. Tandem. Tandem. Okay. All right. Thank you for your time. It was such a pleasure to learn more about you and learn more about your parents who are truly special, fantastic, resilient, just heartfelt people. And I... I'm looking forward to learning even more stories about them over the time to come because I'm sure there's plenty. I can't wait for you to meet them someday or just to have them send you like a little hello via video. I'm sure that they're going to love this episode. My dad's going to play it on a loudspeaker at the next air train committee meeting or something. Yeah, I was like, remember. <laughs> and my mom's probably going to like send this to all my aunts in Mexico and be like, Edith, yeah, she's famosa. She's famous. She's like 
Ana Barbara or something. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. This was fun. Let's do it again. Thank you so much to Eritrea for this amazing show. Thank you to Lionel T. Jawe for our music and thank you to you as always, dear listener, for sticking through to the end, listening to the whole show. Again, if you haven't already followed us over on Instagram at who made you great, please do so and please subscribe wherever you're listening. Can't wait to see you again on the internets next week. Bye.